Hello, humans, and welcome to an extra special, super long, season finale episode of Sinister Soup. Season finale episode of Sinister Soup! Season finale episode of Sinister Soup! Yay! Yay. I bet you didn't even know we were gonna have seasons. Boom. Big surprise. Been doing this for almost a year, kind of. Um, But... Uh, we've really enjoyed doing it, and we do expect to have more coming, but we also need a break to go home, see our family, spend a little holiday season relaxing and not recording episodes, and we know that you all will understand, so yeah, that's going to be the breakup of the two seasons, and hopefully more in the future, but for now, we're going to bring you a longer special with two movies double movie time double feature double yeah. feature and only one beer because um just don't want to drink more than one right now <laughs> um well so, that, yeah. uh i want to cut in here too i also want to say to the listeners that is another thing uh, another reason we are doing a second season instead of just uh, doing like a hundred episodes and not breaking it into seasons it's because this show is ever evolving as we learn how to do different things and learn how to like focus ourselves more on what we really want the show to be and part of that is we're going to be changing up some segments and some parts of the show um, the, the bulk of the show will remain the same bring some culture and the movie debates and the uh, rolling the dice but um Beer of the Week is one of those segments that we've decided over the course of the year that doesn't really fit with the rest of it. Um, we're also not beer connoisseurs, so when we like <laughs> taste a beer, we're just sort of like, uh, it's good or, or it sucks. Or it's bad. Uh, <laughs> so we're going we're gonna to replace Beer of the Week with something that we're more knowledgeable about and more passionate about. Mm-hmm. We will reveal that when the next season comes so you right. start thinking what you think is going to replace beer of the week um yeah and if i mean if you have any ideas we're still open to suggestions and if we don't get any suggestions that we like are in love with then we already have a pretty good idea so yeah send some suggestions and let us know what you'd like to hear as listeners without further ado we would like to start the extra special extra long season finale episode with the same way we start every episode bring some culture so bro what is your last culture of the season well for the last culture of the season i am going to shout out an author that i ran into on twitter the other day she has a short uh short novel out called matilda and the ice dragon um, and it's on the website Inkit, which is a place where people self-publish or indie publish things, kind of a social media platform for self-publishing writing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a cool little community on there. And yeah, I actually really enjoyed her book. I mean, it's a quick, easy read, very fun, uh, kind of like light fantasy. I mean, it's 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 all the way fantasy, but like it's a light read. It's not super dense or an epic or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she's also on Twitter uh, as official Ash M. So right. her her full name is Ashley M. Bays. And yeah, she's a fellow writer. She uh, dedicates a lot of time on Twitter. Since I've been following her, I've noticed 
she dedicates a lot of her time to just like promoting other authors and she actually like reads their work which is pretty rare mm -hmm. <laughs> um i mean a lot of people say like yeah there's a thing called writer's lift on linkedin a hashtag called writer's lift where you see like 50 of them a day and it's just like drop your links your blogs your websites down here let's all support each other and like that's great for getting followers but like by the time any of those posts has like 20 links, like maybe one of them's getting read, you know? Yeah. Um, but I see Ashley is like actively like very working, really like putting a lot of time into promoting these other people. So I just think she's awesome. She deserves your support. Um, and if you want to read some fantasy, she's got her book, Matilda and the Ice Dragon over there on Inkit. And then you should give her a follow on Twitter because especially if you're a fellow writer, she will actually read your stuff and tell mm. you what she thinks. So it's pretty awesome. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Always support people who are supporting other authors. That's what we're trying to do. So it's great to see it done in the wider community as well. And well, like I'm with you. On, that's just surprising. She actually like reads all of the things because I I don't see that happening a lot on TikTok either. Of there's a lot of like, hey, drop your TikTok mm -hmm. name and like what books you're reading, and we'll like read together. And it's it never happens. Yeah, I mean it's a lot, right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah it would take like she does a lot of work to do this. I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, just the amount of work I put into social media for me is like too much for me. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I can't imagine putting as much into it as she does. Um, and she seems to mostly be doing it for the community as a whole, you know, not she's never like promoting herself. Like she didn't even tell me about her book when she reached out to me. I just found it. Yeah, she's she's a cool, cool, cool woman. And you should check out her book and and follow her on on the stuff this week i am also bringing kind of a social media person uh i don't know her name because she doesn't put it on her tiktok account for obvious privacy reasons that i do not blame her for at all but her tiktok handle is called b-h-v-i-d-e b-h-v-i-d um and underneath that tiktok handle you'll see it says um the hugo award nominated editor uh, for science fiction and fantasy mm. um so i immediately like was like okay i need to follow this person and start seeing what their content's about and she is just sort of like her own little masterclass on what she's experienced in the editing industry and the mm. publishing industry so every video she does is little tips and tricks on like what editors are looking for, what publishers are looking for, what mistakes you can avoid. And if you're going the traditional route, uh, things to doubly check on if you're going the independent route. She just has a whole bunch of like short little one minute TikTok videos on the editing business and the publishing business. And I think that's... Hmm. It was a side of TikTok I haven't seen. I'm normally just on the like book talk side of TikTok where it's just like non-professionals who love to read talking about why they love to read. And mm -hmm. it was cool to see. And I've be since I've followed her account, I'm getting more of these people, these professionals come in to my feed of people who are actually in the business and they're like, you liked this book here's why like here's the things you don't think about of why we publish what we do and the things that catch our attention and make, make us know that something will be a huge seller mm -hmm. and yeah that's been cool that was my culture that was your culture 
so you know what our next segment is. Yeah, we're going to get into forced entrollment. Hey, forced entrollment. Yeah. Forced entrollment is when Clay and I both roll dice to determine who is going to argue either for or against whatever piece of media we are talking about at the time. Um, the higher role gets to defend the thing, and the lower role gets to attack the thing. Before we do so, though, there's going to be a trivia question about the thing. The movie we are doing today is Antlers for the first one, a horror film. Tell us about Antlers, Clay. So Antlers is a horror film that takes place in Oregon in the modern day, centered around uh, a young boy who is like living in this backwater town uh, that kind of like seems like it's one of those coastal towns that used to rely on some sort of industry, a mining, the mining industry in this case. Um, there's a lot of towns like this in the Northwest. Uh, where they used to re rely on some sort of heavy industry that has since been shut down for various reasons, usually for like its impact on the environment. This particular town is a old mining town that is now really small because the mine appears to have been shut down long since. But that doesn't stop people from going into the mine shafts to do other sorts of business, which is exactly what this little boy's dad is doing when he's cooking meth in that mine at the beginning of the movie. His father and his father's like meth cooking partner are attacked by some sort of creature in the dark. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where the movie kicks off from there without giving too much away. The little boy is essentially raising himself and trying to keep locked away the monster that has uh, forced itself into his family by inhabiting his father. Uh, his father has become the host for this creature. Um, and the creature is a Wendigo, if you weren't already uh, uh, familiar with the concept of, or with the premise of, of antlers. Yeah, this creature infecting the little boy's father is a Wendigo. We'll probably talk more about that as we actually review the movie. So that's all I'll say for now. All right, you got a trivia question for me. I got a trivia question for you. Sweet. So, uh, like I said, we'll talk a little more about the Wendigo. The Wendigo is a is a malevolent spirit from uh, an ancient Native American belief system. Um, it's sort of a creature that revolves around cannibalism. Uh, like, mm -hmm. eating human flesh can turn you into a Wendigo. Um, some believe the Wendigo is a separate type of evil spirit that preys on those who eat human flesh uh, there's a few variations of it but the bottom line is if you become a cannibal uh you could become a wendigo which mm -hmm. is a, a creature that's always hungry and never satisfied so travis which tribe is the wendigo from hmm. i was is it... i was just talking about this today but i we didn't come to a definitive <laughs> <laughs> okay go ahead all right well luckily we do multiple choice up in here mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so is it from a the ojibwe mm -hmm. b the nascopi mm -hmm. c the iroquois mm -hmm. or d the algonquin tribe oh man well that takes away the thing we were talking about today um well now you know <laughs> yeah. No, I know. 
you were wrong. I had I a guess. feeling I was wrong. I said we were talking about the Navajo, and I think that that's more Skinwalker, isn't it? Um, that's a anyway. Skinwalker, yeah. Give them one more time. One more time. Speed through. Okay, Ojibwe, Nascapi, Iroquois, Algonquin. I'm gonna go D Algonquin. Correct. Ah, yes. I knew it wasn't the Iroquois, and the other two I don't really ever remember reading about too much so awesome mm-hmm. yeah i mean the algonquin is technically like a bunch of different tribes yeah it's like more of an ethnic group sort mm-hmm. of like the iroquois confederacy mm-hmm. but um it is also a tribe from that area and that ethnic group is where the wendigo comes from i i originally wrote this question to be far harder where i was gonna be like the algonquin uh ethnic group has this many tribes uh <laughs> blah 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 and the wendigo comes from this like which of these is not of the algonquin origin and i was like this isn't like a podcast about native american history (laughs) also you've studied that far more than i have so i would have failed miserably right it would have been stupid so i changed it to this um but yeah you got it good job let's do it i get advantage here we go Oh, that ought good. to do for you. Good thing, because I rolled a nat one the first day. hey And then a five. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> okay, well, it'll be me then. I rolled an eight. Okay. I thought I was in the clear. <laughs> no. Well, with those uh, terrible rolls on my part, you get to defend antlers. So starting the timer in three, two, one. Yes. Uh, Luckily for me, my slightly less terrible role has afforded me the opportunity to defend a fine new horror movie added to the archives of my ever-growing list of horror films that I've watched and enjoyed. So yeah, my slightly less terrible role affords me the opportunity to defend this horror film, which I actually quite enjoyed. It's, uh... It's been a couple of years since I enjoyed, like, a new horror movie, so this one was pretty refreshing. First of all, it was, like, directly up my alley. I'm a huge fan of Native American folklore, Native American history. I really, like, honor and respect those cultures. And I'm also just a big fan of any creature that's a shapeshifter of any kind. (laughs) Those are my favorite uh, creatures ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, My favorite stories and... I think they're just like the most terrifying because there's something truly chilling about something that can uh, mimic the form and shape and and voice of of those you love and stuff and it really I love the psychological horror that gets added to like the corporeal monster horror when you have this kind of creature so I love Wendigos um, and I've been waiting a long time for like a well-produced Wendigo movie to exist because up until now there's like a couple like i don't think you could even call them b movies (laughs) uh from like the 80s and stuff that have like kind of tried this and then there's like an episode of supernatural which honestly wasn't terrible no um that was it's still one of my favorite episodes of supernatural actually and it was in the first season so it was still when they were like they weren't uh they weren't so off the rails yet you know, mm-hmm. they were just, they were still monster hunters in that season. So it was like, 
I thought they did a good job with the Wendigo. But until this movie, that was really like the only decent portrayal of Wendigo on film that I'd ever seen. Because um, the only other time is like in Pet Cemetery, but that's not really a Wendigo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like sort of a Wendigo. Like it's Stephen King's take on a Wendigo, but they're never actually facing the creature itself. Mm-hmm. And I did like the way that they approached this Wendigo as sort of a take on like neglect and a take on addiction mm-hmm. and the way that can like haunt a family and an, an entire community. Um, like it's certainly no coincidence that the first two people that got killed by the Wendigo in the movie were like actively cooking meth in an abandoned gutted out mine shaft. So I thought they used the creature as an interesting metaphor um, and I, I think that the uh, there's kind of two takes on the Wendigo. There's one that Supernatural used, where it's like a corporeal physical creature um, that has like been turned from a human. Mm-hmm. Or there's this idea that it's like a malevolent spirit that can inhabit humans um, when they meet the prerequisite, uh, prerequisites, basically. Uh, meaning like they've eaten human flesh is usually the, the big one. Uh, these this movie went with the uh, possession version of the Wendigo and yeah I thought they did a pretty cool job with it uh, I'm gonna start with that I like the the metaphor that they used and the way they expressed the creatures effects on the community because it tied in that what I love about shapeshifter horror which is that psychological and physical aspect that comes mm-hmm. along with that sort of a creature yeah the there's a quote and i cannot remember what director it's from but he said the worst thing a movie can't can be isn't bad the worst thing a movie can be is okay and that (laughs) is what i think i felt about antlers because it wasn't bad to call it bad would be entirely ignoring the elements of it that really did work you could tell that it was produced by camaro del toro because of the amazing body horror um monster creation sort of blend uh, elements in the film but my problem with it and what i think made it just okay was it had a lot of things it was trying to juggle and it never committed to any of them so it wanted to be a grotesque body horror film and we got a little bit of that but it never fully committed to it it wanted to be an allegory about or a metaphor about neglect and the withering of communities and abuse within s- small withering communities. And we got a little of that, but it never fully committed. And I think it wanted to be also like a really slow burny tense film. And we got a little bit of that, but it never fully committed. Everything that it tries to do within its hour and a half runtime seems a half measure that it never commits to and i never felt like all those elements blended into one thing so when i left the theater i was like i just felt a little unsatisfied like oh if this scene would have been changed in this way i think that would have worked better oh if this would have been i really just felt like i got the shell of a movie i would have loved if it would have done what i like a little bit more in all of the things it was trying to do hmm. okay i mean i feel like it committed pretty hard to the to the body horror thing you don't think it committed to that i think it gave us what 
I mean, when you really pick apart the scenes, it gave us maybe four and like yeah they had the effect that they had but uh it wasn't kind of drawn out more it wasn't the transformation wasn't really slow it was like one scene of sickness and then like one scene of the sort of carcasses and that was like grotesque and then you saw a little bit of the current but it never committed fully to that um i will say that's probably the element it committed to the most i have another problem with I really hated the scene at the cop's house um, where they just all go into the shed. I hate in horror movies where there's like one location <laughs> that people just keep going to and dying. <laughs> I was like, oh, now this cop's going into the shed. Oh, now the second cop goes into the shed. Oh, now this sister goes into the shed. I was like, how many times are you going to go into this damn shed? <laughs> I really don't like when horror movies do that. Um, but that was a really small, like, nitpicky thing. Of That's the only scene where I was like, okay, that is bad. <laughs> like, the rest of this has been decent. That was bad. I feel like if you were a cop and you showed up at a crime scene and you saw a body face down, you're going to go check it out, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the first cop. Um, but then I think, like... No, that was the second cop. There was yeah, no the body second... face down from the first cop. The first yes, cop yes. went in to investigate weird noises and then got iced. And then the second cop was like, oh, my my boy's over there. Better go see if he's as dead as he looks like he is. And my see, my problem with that, it, it's not the logical, like logical element of it. It's the fact that they have so much more room to play with stylistically and through the writing that they don't use. So maybe, yeah, the cop would go investigate the dead body. But then you could have had the Wendigo be in the shed, and then he runs, and the Wendigo chases him, and, like, it happens <laughs> somewhere else that the sister can get, then go to. Instead, it just, like, attacks him in the shed, too, and then he's in the shed. And then the sister goes to the shed and is like, it attacks him again. <laughs> They're both in the shed. I just don't... I don't like when horror movies are like keep it to just this what this terrifying creature only attacks people in this one location or the people like don't run from danger immediately and so they keep dying in this one location. Bro, do you know how how logistically difficult it is to change a, a film set location, <laughs> especially when you've got CGI creatures involved? You they know? had a whole house and all that yard <laughs> and money it was a high production horror film they could have done it not if they did another scene with that wendigo in the trees bro that would have been it <laughs> that would have been over budget i just imagine every time a scene like that happens i imagine sitting down writing the script of like character a goes into the shed <laughs> <laughs> character b now goes into the shed as well but i've spent a lot of time on the shed Really, I I just will stick with my original point of I think it was just okay because it didn't actually achieve <laughs> the three goals that it set out to do. The metaphor, the slow burn, or the... It had a pacing problem was my slow burn take that I didn't really get to because it is now Beer of the Week. Hey, Beer of the Week. <laughs> beer of the Week. All um, right. For the listeners there for this super special long episode. We are using the beer of the week to break up the two different movies. We are not going to be telling you what we thought of Antlers until the very end. Ooh. Ooh. 
Yeah, we're going to do uh, Dune next yes. after we do Beer of the Week. And then we'll tell you what we thought of both of them. Indeed. So, what you drinking? Uh, you tell me first. All right. I am having, um, suggested to me by one of our faithful listeners and my friend James. You know James. Um, I know James. Yeah, you do hate, your characters hate each other in D&D. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a Chimay, I think it's Chim, yeah, C H I M A Y. It is a beer out of an abbey in Belgium that is brewed by Trappist monks. Oh, yeah, I know about that one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm having. What are you having? I am drinking Unknown Coordinates from Volition Brewing in North Bend, Washington. I recently discovered this brewery. When I was working on a film set out there, I was out there for like a week. So I went to this place a few times and their beer is awesome. Mm. Super, super tasty. They are also a really, really cool little brewery with like a sci-fi nerd kind of theme. They have a life-size frozen in carbonite Han Solo on the wall. Nice. They also have beers named after all kinds of sci-fi classics. For example, they have the Encyclopedia Galactica Pale Ale. Mm. Um, they have the Activate Hyperspace IPA, um, but this one was, uh, this is the one I bring up today because it succeeded in the IPA quest. You did it. I did it. I actually found an IPA that I genuinely enjoyed drinking. I went back for more. I've got a second class of it and everything. So unco- unknown coordinates. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to find it. I have not been able to find it to buy anywhere, but I did really like it. All right. Um, and I have just a little bit left here, so I'm I'm drinking it now. Sweet. I'm going to crack mine open. Also, frozen in carbonate Han. Like, do you want a Jabba? Because that's how you get a Jabba. That is, <laughs> that is how you get Jabba's. <laughs> yeah. You got to be careful. I don't know why I'm waiting for the foam. I've had one of these before, and they're good. They're very good. Dark, <laughs> kind of chocolatey beers. Definitely up my alley. Uh, I don't like most... Well, I don't hate most light beers, but they're just not my favorite. I like mm. a darker beer like this. And the Trappist Monks know how to brew a dark beer that has a kick. So They've been doing it a long time. Mm, mm-hmm. I kind of already talked about how i felt about this one but it's good it's um it's kind of a wheat beer almost uh which Mm. is my favorite kind of beer but it's technically an ipa it's called an american ipa Mm. Mm -hmm. whatever that means um so yeah it's an american ipa it's uh it's not overly hoppy there's like um, hints of fruit and citrus and wheat in there and i think those kind of cancel out the hops a little bit Mm-hmm. It kind of goes down real smooth. It's not like got that super bitter aftertaste that makes me dislike so many IPAs. So I would definitely recommend it if you're ever in North Bend or just go to Volition Brewing in general and drink whatever your favorite kind of beer is from them because they do a really good job. I tried several of their beers. I liked pretty much everything I had there. It's my beer season now. Summer was your beer season with all the wheat beers. We're We're moving into fall, winter, my beer season. Yeah, we're getting into dark beer. Yeah, yeah dark yeah. beer territory. Dark beer time. Right. Love That's it. true. So now, while we drink our tasty beers, we will start the second of two 
movies we are discussing today, Dune. It is my pleasure to tell you what Dune is about. Dune is based on the epic science fiction novel that it's not really, it's just a fact that Dune the novel has had probably debatably the largest impact on science fiction in American literary history. It's very possible it's the number one. There's an argument for a few others, but Dune has formulated a lot of what people have seen in science fiction. Star Wars was heavily influenced by Dune. Wheel mm -hmm. of Time, the fantasy novel, was heavily influenced by Dune. Several, several things you've watched, even a little bit, I think of like Blade Runner was influenced by Dune. It was written by a man named Frank Herbert, Herbert in 1965 it is a story about paul atreides so the movie follows this book um the first half of this book it is a two going to be a two-part movie paul atreides is a sort of like a lord's heir his father is the the duke of a planetary house so essentially in the dune universe there is a bunch of planets that work like feudal lord system um, there's one emperor who lives on one planet and dukes that sort of have strongholds on these other planets. And there's a planet called Arrakis. And Arrakis has this thing on it called spice, which makes time, like space travel possible. And the story follows uh, this young Paul Atreides, who's the son of Duke Leto. And Leto, Duke Leto is inheriting Arrakis, given given the planet as a gift by the Emperor, and has to move from his home planet and take control of Arrakis. Um, but there's a lot of like political feuding, and there's this sort of knowledge that this house called the Harkonnens are going to do whatever they can to stop the Atreides from ruling on Arrakis. And it follows Paul as he gets swept up in his father's politics, as well as in the culture of Arrakis, the Fremen, and sort of begins to be seen as this messianic figure. Uh, the story goes from there and has him as the primary protagonist. There's a lot that can be said. It's a massive world-building story, kind of like us trying to condense Game of Thrones Wheel of Time down the episodes we've tried to condense those into like a little blurb it's kind of impossible but that's generally the story paul atreides is a messianic figure on this planet arrakis as his father struggles with kind of political gain problems i guess the last thing i would i would just say that's important is like arrakis is a the desert planet and it everybody's there for the spice yeah it's kind of based on like oil in the middle east in a lot of ways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um but yeah they they're there to harvest this spice that uh is in amongst the sand which is very treacherous because the local fremen consider the spice to be sacred and they use it for themselves and then also there are giant sandworms that will eat you if you walk around on the sand for too long yeah that's another movie that was influenced by the book dune was tremors <laughs> oh yeah i mean dune is like the lord of the rings of sci-fi it is it really is but we are talking about the movie, not the book. So here I have a trivia question for you. Okay. Specifically for the movie, not the ah, books. Ah, good. <clears throat> so in a sequence, the scene when Duke Leto 
first meets uh, uh, Stillguard. Before mm-hmm. Stillguard comes into the sort of throne room, uh, Duncan Idaho is talking with the group about his work with the Fremen and how he has been in their sieges. They He explains to them that there is about 10,000 Fremen in one siege, and there's a like um, upwards of 100 sieges. So about a million Fremen. And they're very excited about this because they want to actually make an alliance with the Fremen. Mm-hmm. In that sequence, it is mentioned how many Fremen the Harkonnens believed were on the planet. And it's 50,000. Much... I didn't even have to give you multiple choice. No, I remember. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to be a good one, man. That's like yeah. a one line. That's one line. Yeah, I heard it, though. <laughs> I heard that line. I am embarrassed. All right. You get an advantage. <laughs> okay. Roll for force controlment. Yeah. You're going to get it. 13, 14. Two. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The show is going to end exactly how it began, which is me winning every dice roll. Which is me having the DM's curse. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who weren't here for the first, for uh, our first few episodes in like February, yeah, um, Travis lost this dice roll the first seven episodes in a <laughs> row. It was hilarious. Yeah, Dungeon Master's Curse. All right. Well, you get to kick us off again. I'll count you down. Why is oh. Dune worth the watch? Three, two, one. It is Dune, Your Honor. <laughs> The defense rests. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, but I mean, honestly, like, that is a decent answer for, like, if you're a sci-fi fan. Like, if you're a sci-fi fan and you saw the quality of the trailer, you're going to watch Dune. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> I mean, pretty much, like, I have long since lost faith uh, that a lot of these films will come out and be any good. The Witcher is a perfect example. I saw the trailers. I was like, doesn't look good, but I still watched it because I'm a science. I, I'm a fantasy fan. You know, Dune is like if you saw the Hobbit trailer and and you didn't watch the Hobbit, like you're gonna watch it. You're gonna give it a shot. You know. <laughs> um, but then on top of that, but Dune is not like the Hobbit in that it was awesome and it totally delivered on everything it was supposed to be. It lived up to the book, and that is a task that, frankly, I didn't think it was up to. Despite having a really good production crew, really good cast, I was still kind of like, eh, I don't know. They're like, there's like a 30, not 30, there's like a maybe a 10% success rate on this, you know, where, like, you got Game of Thrones, and then you have... Lord of the Rings, and then you have every other fantasy movie ever made after the book. <laughs> um, uh, and it's pretty much the same with like sci-fi books and Stephen King horror books. Like, it's it's hard to do the book justice. But I thought Dune did a great job, and I thought they made an excellent decision to split it in two, because even split in two, they were cramming a lot of things into one movie, and I was I was still kind of like pretty hesitant to, to see if they could do it and I was really happy with the results um, they stuck really close to the book 
there was like in Game of Thrones, like in Lord of the Rings, there was lots of dialogue directly from the author's words, which I think is completely vital if you're going to like, if you're going to make a movie after a book this monumental in the genre, you you just use the words that are there. Like, they're monumental for a reason. They they have good dialogue. They have great passages and great words. Like, just use those words. I hate when movies like try to rewrite everything. Um, so Dune didn't do that. You know where where it was applicable and where it worked. They put direct quotes from Herbert in there. Um, I mean, it's become like a mantra. Like, fear is the mind killer. I think a lot of people don't know that that's like from Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's you know it's a long time ago Dune was written, but that's now like pretty much just a common turn of phrase. Like fear is the little death, um, mm-hmm. and that's from Dune. So like if that if that monologue hadn't been in there, I would have been upset. But it was, so it's okay. Um, there was a lot to do in Dune. There was a uh, lots of like ships and huge monsters and political machinations and governmental bodies to establish lots of characters to establish um it would have been really hard as a production team to pick and choose what to cut and overall i just think they made the right choices so i think that's my main defense for it honestly like they had all the material they needed to make a great movie but the problem with a big book like dune is you have too much material and you have to cut something, so you gotta hope you don't cut the thing that all the super fans are like, what the hell, blah! <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I think the team at, the team that created Dune did a really good job of, of living up to the book and staying true to the message that Frank Herbert laid out therein. I mean, not to sound like one of those super fans, but I was a little upset. That I was a little upset they cut the dinner scene um, where you have oh the, me too the tension too. between Lady Jessica and the Doctor and like that immediate established distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just I think this movie I'm gonna preface this by saying Denis Villeneuve was and still is my favorite working director. Um, mm-hmm. Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, Sicario, the man's track record is perfection, in my opinion. Um, until this movie, and that, I don't think that's <laughs> his fault. Uh, it's stylistically gorgeous. It is directorially well done. I think it's an impossible story to, to put to film. Um, because even with a lot of things on the cutting board floor, um, it still had to be super exposition heavy, kind of confusing, and at times dreadfully boring. Um, and dad and I went to it with mom. We drug mom to a movie. Let's just oh, say God. that. Crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> she never goes with us. But we, we brought her and uh, we had like the story already like we'd read the book but mom hadn't and so i asked her i was like did that all register to you like as someone who had didn't come in with like prior knowledge of the story and she was like most of it but i lost a lot and like our mother Mm -hmm. watches movies religiously like she is very good at judging films and picking up stories she knows when storytelling is good so she also reads 
she also oh, reads she, like 10 times the books we do yeah she reads like a maniac so it's not like she is ignorant of how storytelling is is done or no not, doesn't know how a story should be told and that kind of like encompassed to me what she said is how i felt of like i got most of it but not all and i think the movie itself like i can't deny just like antlers i can't say that it was bad because the film was gorgeous it was amazing to look at but i left the theater a little empty a little bored and kind of just thinking like this is just an impossible book to make well i don't think anything's impossible i mean i think that's why i use game of thrones as an example so often but it does kind of defy all that um (laughs) till season eight but that doesn't that's not what i'm talking about right now um (laughs) because game of thrones the series is not finished that's impossible that's that's impossible like you can't expect to do as well when you have books to go on and then when you don't expect to like be george martin level writers you're just not going to be i don't think dune is impossible i mean i i thought they did pretty well and i think that's why they cut it in two i mean i know that's why they cut it in two because they knew it'd be completely impossible it would be impossible to put it in a two-hour slot you know the whole book yeah looking at you david Um, lynch (laughs) <laughs> yeah he he tried um if you're not familiar with the original attempt at putting dune to film it was directed by david lynch and um just i don't want to i don't want to necessarily say this is a recommendation but i'm not gonna try to explain a david lynch movie to you so if you want to see that go give it a look it was something it was a movie <laughs> um, this movie was leaps and bounds better than that. And I, I still think that the choices they made and what they kept chose to keep, Archduke Atreides and Paul's relationship, they kept enough of it, I feel like, that you got like that combination of warmth between father and son and the weight of responsibility of like a duke and his heir, a duke mm-hmm. passing something on to his heir. You got the mentorship of Duncan Idaho and of Gurney Halleck and the importance that that had on Paul. And it, it it was enough to tell you like, oh, yeah, Paul is like a good fighter. Paul is well-trained. Paul is well-educated. Like all these things are very important because he's going to become because he's like a chosen one type figure. And something I hate in movies, kind of like your shed thing, is when <laughs> a... Uh, <laughs> When a chosen one is like, I mean, this is why I don't like the farmer thing. Like every chosen one is a farmer Mm -hmm. is because they go from being a farmer and then like in Wheel of Time, for example, like in one year, (laughs) he's like uh, a bad enough fighter to fight like anybody. Like Rand can kill anybody. Uh, He's like one of the best swordsmen in the whole time. Beer of the week is right. over. We're already you know? drinking. Beer. <laughs> already you really, you really had to end your Dune defense by just crapping on my favorite book series. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a good example of the cuz prophecy trope. Mm. It's like the best example, it's really. It's fair. Yeah. 
Robert Jordan mm-hmm. didn't even he didn't even try and try. He's like, yeah, I'm using that trope, but yeah, he's like, no, because prophecy is the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which he is reincarnation, so he justifies it in that way. Like, <laughs> I'm not. Yes. I don't. I like Wheel of Time. Let's. I know sure. you do. I know you do. We have our differences with Game of Thrones Wheel of Time. We've talked about that on the show before. This is not new thing. So I'm a big lying liar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I loved Dune. Uh, Denis is he's perfection. I have not disliked a single thing he's ever made, and this is no exception. I think all of your defenses are like they kept in what, but beyond what you defended, I think even more so of them keeping in. There were neat little ways they worked with, like Frank Herbert's writing style is really weird because he does like third person omniscient so he just hops Mm -hmm. narrators like all the time in the middle of a paragraph sometimes it's just like now you're in this person's head now you're in that person's head and like it's jarring at times i think the way they handled that especially with i'm glad you brought up the mind killer line because that's all in paul's head in the book the fear Mm -hmm. of the mind killer monologue and i was like man how are they gonna do it because that's an important like monologue and having Lady Jessica outside muttering the words as her son is like facing this test that could kill him. I was like, wow, well done. Um, I also thought like the way they did the voice, I was really scared that the voice was going to be really stupid, but the voice was, I liked that. I really liked the shields. Those were another thing that could, there were so many elements of the story that could have been blundered and done in like a campy way and i think denis pulled them off i actually didn't like it so oh i mostly agreed with your points uh your points were spot on like i wish i could have switched spots with you on uh well on both these movies actually Mm. um but for dune that was my biggest problem with it it was like if i hadn't read that book I would have been like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Dad, that's how Deanna was. I, I watched it with my fiance, Deanna, and she hasn't read the book. So she was like the entire time. Also, like mom, like a big a avid reader, big fan of stories. Like, um, it's not like she doesn't get movies or anything. Mm-hmm. This movie was confusing. Mm-hmm. Like I don't think you can really argue against that too much. It was like a lot of information to download, mm-hmm. um, in a pretty short amount of time. And I agreed it was pretty boring. I don't know. And mm-hmm. I also, it's ironic because what I wanted more of in the movie was like the political machinations and the intrigue and the espionage that was going on in the early parts of the book. Which I guess to a lot of people maybe would be more boring than like a full-scale Harkonnen invasion. Yeah. But like that's how the Harkonnens orchestrated the Atreides' downfall in the book. Yeah. It was like much more through espionage and political machination and then like a final like military punch. Yeah. But they did a lot of stuff before that, you know. This movie just made it seem like the Harkonnens are just like barbarians who just like rolled in and 
no intelligence just kind of like punch their way back into mm. arrakis you know mm. and i didn't really feel like that in the book with the harkonnens i felt like they were much more conniving and intelligent enemies you know which i thought was more scary and more intimidating more yeah. interesting i the thing is i don't disagree with you i think I think where I fall is this is a book. This was a movie for lovers of Dune, the book. Um, I don't. I don't think it has a very wide audience and appeal. It's been compared to Lord of the Rings a lot in reviews, and I firmly disagree with that because I think Lord of mm -hmm. the Rings, Lord of the Rings has wide audience appeal, but also appeals to the fans of the book. Dune, the movie, is a massive like a blockbuster art house film where this is not mm -hmm. everybody's taste. I don't, I, I do not disagree with the criticisms that it was slow, but for me as like a huge Dune fan, I'm on book four and I have really loved the series. I think that's what made me just love this movie was like, wow, I'm seeing a lot of the elements that I wanted to see on screen. I, I do also kind of agree with you. The Harkonnens are kind of reduced to more of a barbarian stance. But I kind of knew that was going to happen going into a movie. Yeah, me I too. think those long-form political machinations can only be done tactfully through like television. So as soon as I saw it was going to be movie adaptations, I was like, "They're just going to be the evil guys that like blow things up," and that I was fine with that. And mm -hmm. kind of knowing that going in, I was fine with that. I yeah. was too. I just think it downgrades them substantially. Yeah, and I think maybe. I don't know what's going to happen in the second one. I know it's going to be more action-packed with Paul's rebellion. Well, um, yeah, it'll be the riding worms and fighting I think the Sardaukar. We might, I think we might get a little more um, Baron Harkonnen like, talking with the Emperor because we'll probably get Fade Rafa. So we'll get mm -hmm. a little more of that setup stuff, I think. There is one thing in the sequel that I'm really scared because uh, Denise so far has, has pleased me and I'm like wow you pulled off some of these things I didn't think you could but I think his biggest test is coming and that's Aaliyah because Aaliyah is freaky and a child <laughs> so like finding a child actor to play the character of Aaliyah spoilers for those who don't know Aaliyah is Paul's sister who is uh, at the end of the first Dune movie is yet unborn and something happens with her that makes her like a really creepy kid and yeah it'll be tough to find an actor that has a child actor that can pull that weight they're planning on making messiah and everything the plan i've heard and i don't know if this is true is that they're doing a trilogy and they're going to end with dune messiah which i love that plan because that mm. dune messiah is my favorite of the series so far because it it's like, oh, this character you loved, again, spoiler, this character you loved and thought was the messianic figure isn't. <laughs> and like, he's just another oppressor in a different way. And I really liked the ending of that. So I hope they follow through, but they're definitely doing part two. There was plenty of things I liked about it. I mean, I really liked the uh, world design was awesome. The co oh, costumes, yeah. the props, the ships were cool. The worm was really cool. I was worried about the worm. Like, what's that worm going to look like? Or... And, so, and practical. So many practical effects is awesome to see. 
Yeah, well, that's part of it. Yeah, I I'm a big fan of practical effects. It wasn't like a CGI roller coaster. Mm-hmm. Excellent uh, combat as well. Like mm-hmm. whoever mm-hmm. did the combat choreography was awesome. Yeah, but yeah, I don't know. At the end of the day, I I just felt like it was a really badly paced movie mm-hmm. and confusing, and I was just I I was able to like enjoy it a little because I've read Dune. But that was it. I don't think I would have liked it at all if I hadn't. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I had not read Lord of the Rings when I watched them, actually. Yeah, I still haven't. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. And I still enjoyed Lord of the Rings, you know. Yeah. Like, to me, that's what makes a good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, book adaptation. It should make people want to go read the book if they haven't yeah. yet. I fall somewhere like in the middle of that where I, I really do enjoy the movie. I think it was a good movie. I James who recommended the beer phrased it well of like, it was unashamedly epic. <laughs> I liked that, that he's, that was his review of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But sure. I don't, I, I do not agree with all these reviews that are like, it's the next Godfather. It's the next Lord of the Rings. I'm like, hasn't proved that to me yet. Uh, I didn't walk away like I did from the Fellowship of the Ring as a kid. Just like, oh my word, that was amazing. I walked away like, wow, that was doing the book, and I'm glad it's on film, and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe kids are walking out of the theater that way. <laughs> um, yeah. Kids are kids are both harsher critics, but also easier to impress in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So who knows? And they did they did make the wise decision, like Lord of the Rings, to make it PG-13. Mm-hmm. So they could sell that merchandise. There will be all the Dune toys hitting the shelves right here at Christmas time. You watch. Yeah, there will. <laughs> yeah. Dune Legos. It's all coming. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you you said you had different opinions on antlers. What did you what did you want to say about antlers? It was trash. <laughs> total i hated it so much you hated uh, it i hated it it was terrible oh okay okay yeah it was really hard to defend it i uh <laughs> honestly those uh defenses that i used were defenses that i got from the friend i watched the movie with oh. um because <laughs> they didn't hate it as much as me and mm. they they were like um yeah, I could see the merit uh, of the metaphor they were trying to use with this and that. I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm glad you said that because I didn't even. I was so <laughs> irritated with the movie that I didn't even see that. And now I have at least an argument in case I happen to win. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. It was bad. It was a really bad movie. It was like <laughs> gratuitous mutilation. Uh, but like you said, it was like half cocked at the same time there was really no purpose for it other than that was like their primary method of scare factor yeah the pacing was not good there was like continuity errors all over the place like it was a badly filmed movie like the pacing it, was atrocious it was a badly made movie too i'm actually kind of upset with myself that i didn't talk about the pacing as much in my me too you do you always do that that was the thing that upset me the most um, but i didn't hate it but i in a way i did because i fully agree with the quote that i cited of 
the mm-hmm. worst kind mm-hmm. of movie isn't a bad movie. The worst kind of movie is a mediocre movie. And this movie was incredibly mediocre. Yeah, it wasn't like Trolls. You know? No, it wasn't like, like Trolls. You couldn't laugh at it. but You, you couldn't, couldn't laugh at it. It wasn't bad enough to laugh at. You it was too good to laugh either. at, but it was too bad to be enjoyed. Yeah, so probably like at the bottom end of mediocre, mm-hmm. right above that bad line where it would have been back to being an acceptably watchable movie. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't have a ton to say about it. I could sit here and riff on it. Like I hated the dialogue. I thought it was just awful. The characters were shallow. Every conversation was cuz movie, you know. Yeah. Like, every conversation they had was like, oh, you need to know what's happening in the plot. Let me have the t- characters tell you. <laughs> it was, like, never, like, a genuine human conversation, really. Yeah. Um, all the characters were completely one note. Like, was there any characters with, like, a second note? <laughs> I really. can't think of one. The kid was just always hungry and sad and scared and in a dark place. The teacher was always in a dark place because of whatever happened with her father, which yeah. was just like vaguely alluded to and never really solidified. Also, not important to the plot. Yeah. Um, as far as I could tell, it was just like there. Let's acknowledge <laughs> so what, she what a waste. Rec- what a waste of a cast. Carrie Russell and Jesse Plemons are amazing. They're awesome. Yeah. And they were given nothing. <laughs> no, they had nothing to work with. Like, Jesse had, like, no lines. Uh, he yeah. had lines, but they were all the same line. They were the same line. <laughs> like, the entire movie, all he was really saying was like, I don't know, I'm doing my best. And Jesse Plemons is, like, I was watching this movie the whole time, like, this is the guy. This is the guy that starred in one of two scenes that have left me watching my television screen as the credits rolled just in shock um, and that was in breaking bad when he like shoots shot the kid, the kid. Mm-hmm. that and the death of the red viper are the only two times i've not been able to like shut off my tv where i'm just looking at the screen like what did i just watch and i was mm-hmm. watching the movie the whole time like man jesse <laughs> You couldn't even you couldn't like bring more out of this sort of cookie cutter script. No, yeah. it was a really lame script. It was like really bad writing for and not just in the dialogue, but like all around. The monster didn't really make sense. They didn't even have their lore straight like at the. So the rule apparently was once you eat human flesh, if the window goes inside you, then you can then it then it can come out. Right. But like at the end, when they kill the father and she tears out the heart. And then it starts coming out of the kid. It starts coming out of him, and he never ate human flesh. No. Yeah, I had that. I was like, wait. If he did, it was never on screen. Like, when the dad was eating the principal, the kid was actively avoiding it, and that's what they showed showed us. So to me, that was like, oh, the kid hasn't eaten human flesh yet. That's important, Mm -hmm. right? Movie. And then the movie's like, not really. We're just going (laughs) to throw that out the window as soon as it's convenient. Yeah, and then another thing that bothered me about continuity was the, um, I hate when a monster will kill, like, just brutally in one moment, and then, like, won't kill a person in the next. Mm-hmm. I was like, why is the sheriff still alive? <laughs> like, right. Why? why did the, why did the Wendigo leave? Like, it wouldn't leave. It would kill him. 
Yeah. Just like uh, her being able to defeat it in the first place. Like, what a lame final fight. Yeah, that was bad. Like, it was like, okay, she's clearly fighting a puppet. <laughs> like, I'm about practical effects, but you can do practical effects in a way that's effective. Uh, alien. Alien. In the, the 1980s, that yeah. was a puppet, and it was still an amazing action scene. Yeah, I mean, you can totally do that. It's mm-hmm. There's no excuse for it at this point in Hollywood's advancement of of props and special effects. Or, um, sorry, I got to take back. That wasn't a puppet. It was a seven-foot-tall man in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. Still, there's no excuse for it today. Like, we have the effects. We have everything you need to make that monster fight cool. And if you're going to lead up to the end, it's a monster movie. Yeah. Like, you're going to lead up to it for that long, and she finally confronts it, and then it's going to be lame like that? Like, mm-hmm. come on, dude. I will there... I will fully admit, I was... I have about three quarters of the way through, I was like, okay, this hasn't been my favorite, but I might watch it again, because it's a horror film, and we don't get a lot of them that mm-hmm. I actually can, like, consume, if they stick the landing. And then the ending came, and I was like, nope yeah yeah if they stick the landing they definitively did not stick the landing and i actually i hated the shed scene so much i'm glad (laughs) it It bothered me oh it bothered me i want to tell you about the worst part of the shed scene for me this is what it was so before her brother shows up in the car She's sitting in the living room with the kid, right? And they're yep. listening to, like, a guy being murdered outside. Yep. Uh, first of all, she had just talked to him on the phone, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't call him to say, like, oh, hey, your partner just got killed. <laughs> I heard the whole thing. <laughs> it was like there was this barrier between, like, the wall of the house and that shed scene happening in full view of the house window. Mm-hmm. This is what I hated the most. The car pulls up. The second cop goes to the shed and gets killed in literally the exact same way as the first cop. <laughs> or it doesn't get killed, but gets should have been killed mm-hmm. in literally the exact same way. Right before he walks up to the shed, we got a scene, a cut scene, of her crawling to the window to look out the window. And after the Wendigo attacks the second cop, Jesse... The Wendigo, like, stands up and walks away, and it's, like, roaring and walking around in in the light, in, like, the headlights of this vehicle. And then when it cuts back to her and she looks outside, there's nothing there. <laughs> do you remember that? I do. Yep. And then she just goes out there like she has no idea what happened. Yeah, and, you know, it really and, like, bothered me, too. And, and earlier in the movie... They both were super smart, which I actually liked. Like, she goes to the house, hears the dad, and is like, nope. And I was like, oh, finally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A smart, like, horror movie character that's just like, I will tell somebody who knows what to do, and I'm going to leave. And then he goes to the house, sees it's, like, really abandoned, and knocks three times, and is like, I'm going to get a warrant. Mm -hmm. Both those actions, I was like, cool. Finally, characters who aren't stupid. (laughs) And then, then the shed scene happens, and they're like, oh, I'm just going to go into this thing, this shed with dead bodies in it. Like, uh. <laughs> They all do it. They Literally. all do it. 
literally every character except the kid. <laughs> 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 so bad. Uh, no, I was I was trying not to laugh when you brought up the shed thing because I actually laughed in the theater. Yep, the shed was bad. When literally the second cop, like when it happened exactly the same way, I was like, come on. <laughs> really? <laughs> You're like going to do the kid peeking out again and the mm-hmm. Wendigo's going to pop up behind him again? again. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> come on. You like couldn't write something more interesting? more interesting yeah. way for that to happen like the kid like him looking at the dead body in the shed and then he sees the kid running into the forest so he goes into the, like hey kid don't go out there mm-hmm. or something like literally anything else there could have been just... so many ways to do it, it could, that's what i was like arguing in my thing is like you had an entire yard to play with and like a whole house like, where was the tension? And it wanted to be a slow burn movie, but it wasn't because mm-hmm. the tension no, was so bad. I agreed with everything you said. Yeah. Like, those are actually pretty much my argument points, too. And I had to kind of come up with a good one. Well, I just had to steal a good one from someone who didn't hate it as much as me. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I don't remember what movie we started on, but. Antlers. No, I mean the very first episode in February. Oh, yeah, I don't either. Scooby Doo. Yeah. Okay. So we started on one that, like that that we actually enjoyed, even though it's not that great. <laughs> and Scooby Doo or the Mummy, those are like the first couple. We're ending on one that we did not enjoy. Audience listeners, the people who are consistently listening, we want to set a definitive schedule of movies and books either that have been released or are going to be released and we would love your input because this Mm -hmm. is for you so if you uh want to contact us at any of the contacts we're going to say at the end of the show please tell us stuff to read or watch that Mm -hmm. you think you would like to see reviewed and uh james I'm going to put Alex Virus on the list. You don't have to tell me that via email. Oh, hey, James. I love Alex Virus. I've been reading them. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'm already ahead. I'm on book five. I'm on book two. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, that, I just wanted to say that. Um, if you have any suggestions for stuff you know is like coming out soon that you would like us to review when, we, when it does come out, please let us know. If you have an all-time favorite series that you would love us to talk about, also let us know, and we'll put it on the list. Yeah, also movies, TV shows, any anything that is sci-fi, horror, or fantasy. It just has to be one of those three. We're also open to, like, graphic novels, whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would even say anime counts, you know, as long as it falls into those, like, Gundam would count or whatever, yeah. you know? As long as it falls into the genre fiction categories, that's just our brand, so we're staying there. But aside from that, yeah, we'd love to get some suggestions. So please send us some books, send us some shows, send us some movies, send us some anything that's sci-fi, fantasy, horror that you'd like us to review. Um, Another thing I'd like to mention, going into Season 2, so you guys know, we're going to be doing more episodes every month, probably double. So, yeah, yeah, 
it's going to be a lot more content, and we're going to integrate some uh, narrated fiction into the show. So there will be like a story time episode every week um, that will involve writing prompts and work that I've written, and then short stories from other authors who I collaborate with. So it's going to be really fun, and we're extremely excited to roll out the second season. But this show that you've all been listening to will still be here. We're just going to add some other things to it throughout the week. So Sinister Soup will become a little, a little bigger of a production. And um, thank you to everybody who has followed us throughout this first season of us figuring out everything from mm-hmm. technical glitches to how to even do the show to <laughs> our names of our segments. Um, we really appreciate all of you that do listen every week. And uh, I just can't say that enough. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for um, listening to something that's been just a way for two brothers to nerd out about the stuff they're really passionate about. So you're giving us that opportunity by tuning in, and we really appreciate it. So without further ado, um, we'll do our sign-offs here. So I'm Clover Mullum. For those of you who don't know, I am an author, and I have lots of other forms of content you can enjoy. That's mostly what you'll find me posting about. So if you want to follow me on social media and on my newsletter, I will have links to all that down below. I would love to have you folks join the newsletter if you're readers because I release newsletter exclusive content every single month. And I'm always updating you there on my new writing projects and on Sinister Soup stuff. So it's a good place to go. You can find all that at clavermolemfiction.com. And I have all my social media handles there at my website on the bottom of any page as well. So that's the best place to find me, clavermolemfiction.com. I am Travis Vermolem, and you can find me on TikTok at tvermolem. You can find me on Instagram at tvermolemog. And I am not an author. (laughs) Uh, I am a trying to get a master's degree and hopefully be a teacher in the future not that you needed to know that but um (laughs) yeah i those are the two social medias i use the most so if you want to contact me also if you want to just email me uh tvermolem at yahoo.com with any suggestions for the show any uh lists or anything that you want us to get to or just to reach out and say you're a listener i not opposed to it. Tvermolem at yahoo.com, at Tvermolem OG on Instagram, and at Tvermolem on TikTok. Right on. So yeah, please reach out to us. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know if you have any suggestions. We're open to all of that stuff. And until next February, that's when we'll be launching season two is February. Yeah. So until then, I have been Clay Vermolem. And I have been Travis Vermolem. And we are both still those people bye bye thank you for tuning in to sinister soup season one happy holidays